it's still hard to believe how lucky we were to be able to claim now that we saw George Best, especially in this city, okay, which was an unknown place at that time. Okay, Nobody came here to do anything. And then this guy is here, and he left a trail of good memories and bad memories. You know, he got married here. His kids, Callum, was born here. So there's good memories and bad memories that are always going to be talked about, but we were just incredibly lucky to have that guy play here. I mean, every time I go to Europe, especially the UK, and I tell people, yeah, I saw the George Best when I was a kid, the whole conversation just stops. They look at me like they don't even believe that I've heard of George Best, first of all. Okay. And then, but to say that we saw this guy, and I have friends my age who went to soccer camp and George Best was there helping run the soccer camp. I mean, this is like in suburban San Jose in 1980 or 81. You know, it's unbelievable that that guy was even here and that we can still say that. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Okay, it's that time again. How you doing, everybody? It's Tim Hanlon, your humble and congenial host for yet another fun-filled episode of that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We like to call it Good Seats Still Available, and I welcome you to our latest chapter in our journey together uh, in the world of forgotten sports. And uh, today we are focused on the San Jose Earthquakes of uh, today of Major League Soccer uh, that uh, rattle around in that beautiful 18,000-plus-seat stadium called Avaya Stadium just outside of downtown San Jose, uh, one of the more successful franchises in Major League Soccer. But uh, most fans of the team today probably know uh, that uh, the team uh, clearly uh, has a long and uh, colorful history that dates back all the way to 1974. Uh, with the uh, expansion of the then-fledgling original North American Soccer League. Uh, and uh, that is uh, the journey that we're going to be discussing today, that journey from the uh, the starting point in 74, uh, when it really took the NASL by storm in terms of uh, huge attendances and uh, the love affair with the community of San Jose, literally and figuratively putting San Jose on the map uh, at a time when uh, it was really known as more being a suburban enclave uh, for the Bay Area than a, a metropolitan area per se. Uh, and uh, that is uh, the journey from 74 until its current incarnation today uh, of the San Jose Earthquakes that uh, is the topic uh, with our guest today, author and journalist San Jose uh, native Gary Singh, uh, who has written basically, I think, the uh, sort of uh, definitive tome about the history of the San Jose Earthquake. It's called San Jose Earthquakes, a seismic soccer legacy. Came out a couple of years back, and um, we're going to sort of uh, walk through a little bit of that uh, that journey, that history, that uh, colorful history uh, of the San Jose Earthquakes with Gary Singh, our guest, uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, we want to remind you that uh, we are brought to you again by our friends at uh, Audible, uh, who remind you that uh, a 30-day free trial uh, of the Audible service, which includes, of course, a free audiobook download for you to try and to enjoy, uh, is available for you to uh, in, uh, to have, uh, not to hold, of course, but to listen to uh, at uh, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Why don't you give that a try? And that's where you'll get a free 30-day trial, as we said, uh, as well as a free audiobook download from a vast library of 180,000-plus titles 
Uh, I dare you not to find something that's uh, not worthy of your time. Uh, and again, at audibletrial.com slash goodseats, that's the place where you can uh, get that free uh, audiobook download and a free months of uh, free months worth, he says, of the Audible service. So you can cancel uh, at any time. It's, it's essentially a no-risk proposition. Uh, so I don't know why you wouldn't want to consider doing it. Uh, and feel free to do so. We appreciate you trying it. And uh, we also appreciate the folks that have done so already and have enjoyed, as I do and have, uh, audiobooks from Audible. Okay, let us uh, smoothly segue into our uh, very interesting conversation with uh, author, a journalist, a longtime San Jose resident, Gary Singh, the author of the San Jose Earthquakes, a seismic soccer legacy, and our little journey into the history of the team that is today, of course, still known and previously was known as the San Jose Earthquakes. Coming up. I feel like I was born into the story. Um, I don't, I mean, I may have stumbled through a few decades of it, <laughs> but I mean, you know, but um, I think uh, um, if you were a kid in San Jose in the 70s, um, I think everyone would agree that, you know, this wasn't a very exciting place to grow up in. I mean, it wasn't a crisis filled, disastrous war zone or anything, but you know, it was, it was, you know, good old fashioned American suburbia, you know, um, there was no professional sports. There was a minor league baseball team, uh, the lineage of which is now the San Jose giants, but um, back then it was the bees. Um, and, you know, and there wasn't a whole lot to do here, you know, and um, I said some of this in the book, but, you know, there was there was a few shopping. If you were a kid, you went to the shopping mall or you went to Frontier Village, you know, there was, it really wasn't anything to do, you know. And then when that team arrived, um, there had already been, uh, you know, a team in the Bay Area, the Oakland Clippers and the NASL had existed in the other parts of the country. But um, that team was essentially the first thing that, you know, we ever had here that was exciting to go do. OK, you know, um, Southern State had some football teams and they had a world renowned track team in the 60s um, before I was born. You know, but so the earthquakes came along and the whole generation of us just grew up with that team. Um, there's so many stories. Um, and then the whole thing collapsed in 84. And then I grew into a teenager pretty much right after that. And then went to college. I was a music student and an art student and all this stuff. And then still following what was left of pro soccer, even though it was basically amateur public kind of stuff. And then MLS came along. And uh, in between all of this, I was working at Spartan Stadium as a concessions dude, either selling peanuts in the crowd as a teenager or later working in the concession stands, setting them up while I was also in college. And so my whole life has been inseparable from Spartan Stadium to this point. And then I ended up becoming a writer and a journalist. And then that was about right when Landon Donovan got here. And then the whole thing just unfolded that way. And then, you know, still no one being able to predict whether this team or the league was even going to exist that much longer. And then finally, you know, when it became apparent that there would be a stadium finally after almost 40 years at that point, you know, then um, it became a perfect uh, idea pretty much at the last minute, you know, to write an overview of the entire history and then 
put it all out there for the fans. And I wrote it for the fans. I didn't write it for myself, you know. So that's the short version. <laughs> Well, okay, so let's talk about those fans, right? Because uh, you're uh, you're yeah. a chronicle here of the story, right? <clears throat> the uh, the San Jose earthquakes, right? As an entity, uh, it kind of had almost uh, three distinctly uh, different um, sensibilities to them. Name, yes, but you know, clearly they were uh, distinct and different uh, parts of history. Borrowing or using that name, as you, I'm sure, discovered as you went back in time uh, to the beginning days of this franchise, and maybe that's a Another sort of good place to sort of put a push pin into our conversation is uh, maybe you could sort of set the scene a little bit based on obviously you were uh, just a mere zygote, I think, at this time. But circa 19, yeah. late, late 1973, uh, early 1974, you had this uh, fledgling or now again fledgling North American Soccer League uh, looking to uh, expand westward. And it seemed like there was like three teams that were pretty much kind of good to go to expand this league with the exception of the Bay Area. And I guess San Francisco was sort of the the idea, but it kind of didn't sort of pan out that way. Maybe that's a good place to kind of circle around the uh, the beginnings of what became the first incarnation of the Earthquakes franchise. Yeah, as far as I know, there was some mysterious group of businessmen in San Francisco that thought they had an idea to put a team somewhere. I don't know who they were. I don't know the details, but... Um, the way that I discovered the story is, you know, I mean, um, just from talking to all these characters over the last few 20 years or whatever, is that, you know, I mean, again, if you grew up here, there was no team here. This was suburbia. Okay. There was nobody, nobody in San Francisco or Oakland ever conceived of the idea that San Jose would grow into anything except, you know, a cannery backwater okay, or can, there was a lot of canneries here, you know, and agriculture and whatnot. So no one had any idea, even people in San Jose, no one had any idea that this would ever grow into a city that anybody would want to go to. Okay. You know, so, so, but Dick Berg was the promotions guy for the 49ers. He was a guy that was in charge of essentially the halftime circuses that went on. They would, they had, you know, connections to, to Marine world to go bring a bunch of animals on the field and have elephant rides and buffaloes and all sorts of wacky, crazy stuff. And he was part of the conversations that helped the team move from Kizar into candlestick. And then, when the whole idea of, of the NASL bringing a franchise here, he came along, partnered with um, Milan Mandridge, who was basically the guy who started the club, you know, and they, and to get, I don't know whose idea it was initially, but the, the beginning of it was that, yeah, that they did not want to be yet another professional team in San Francisco or yet another professional team in Oakland. They wanted to be the first team in this city it called San Jose because they saw that there was a future here for professional sports. Okay. Now, nobody knew what was going to happen or how long this was going to last. Okay. But they, that was a very visionary way of looking at things like no one anywhere in the world outside San Jose believed these guys. Okay. They really, they were really kind of ahead of their time, even thinking that there would be a successful professional sports team here. Well, you you you've been uh, almost essentially a lifelong resident, sort of of the uh, of the Bay Area. Perhaps yeah. perhaps you could get a little deeper into for our audience who's either not familiar or have never been to the area about sort of I guess which I guess you could call an inferior uh, an inferiority complex of of San Jose. It feels, I guess, you know, a, a tad bit sort of suburb. Well, back in the day, probably a bit more suburban, yeah. even or exurban, but yet it's still close to the Bay Area. So it seems like a kind of Jekyll Hyde kind of identity, no? 
Yeah, it's more or less. That definitely was the case in the set. I mean, for those of you that don't live around here, I mean, San Francisco is, has historically been the main city, okay, you know, um, and then we're sort of like Tacoma is to Seattle, okay, but if you want to use that comparison, it's not exactly the same thing, but that's in the sense of we're the southernmost city of the Bay Area that has always lived in the shadow of San Francisco, and this is in, in the 70s I'm talking about. Right. So that was it. That was generally the attitude. The majority of people that lived here were here because they wanted to live in the suburbs. They had no desire. They were unapologetically uninterested in anything urban. Okay, <laughs> this is why they lived here. They wanted to raise a family in the suburbs and then just do all the things that you do in the suburbs. So because of that, you know, it was very hard for any serious attention to be placed on San Jose. It was always in the shadow of San Francisco. You know, if you were a rock band from San from San Jose in the sixties, you know, you weren't allowed to, you couldn't even tell people you were from San Jose. You had to say, well, I'm from San Francisco. You know, you couldn't, cause no, nobody anywhere knew where San Jose was. Um, you know, this is still the case in a lot of respects, <laughs> okay, you know, but you know, so, it, so that all of this led to, an identity complex. And I think the county that we're in, Santa Clara County, their motto, like in the fifties was something like, you know, we're 45 miles south of San Francisco. Okay. So there was always this inbred embarrassment of being from here. Okay. You know, this is much, much better now. It's not, it's not that way anymore. Okay. But back then this was sort of the attitude. So what do you think Berg then in particular saw in San Jose then as potentially fertile ground, I guess, for a, uh, a professional franchise. Uh, was he from the area? What, what was the glimmer in his eye that he saw outside well, he of saw, the, the area? He, yeah, well, he saw that okay, as, the, as the 49ers were moving from Kizar into Candlestick, which was, I don't know, 70 or 71, he, under, he saw, he ran, ran the numbers and saw the, that the majority of the fans were still coming from the peninsula or the South Bay. This is even in 1970 or so. Okay. You know, so he saw that and he saw that candlestick was right off the freeway rather than having to drive into San Francisco and go find, you know, where Tizar was. I mean, he saw that there was a mass amount of people from the South Bay and the, and the peninsula coming up into San Francisco already. So he said, well, wait a minute, if we just put a team and a sport down there, the numbers of people are already there. It sounds ridiculously simple now. Okay. But back then it was still a kind of a, a backwater place that no one really didn't appear on the radar that much. And then he was just, he saw that, that the numbers of people were down here living in San Jose and that they would support the team, you know, and he was right. So it, it, based on, on what I've been able to tell, right, so I, it, it may be sort of curious as to sort of how this actually finally occurred, but it, it seems to me that uh, Commissioner Woosnam of the NASL, you know, was uh, like most people from outside the area looking at the San Francisco area, either San Francisco or Oakland, probably more uh, more San Francisco, I'm, I'm gathering, uh, as the place. But but it feels like that Berg was the guy that not only influenced Woosnam, but Mandarich, uh, the owner of the team, to actually take this show into San Jose. And uh, I got to think that that was, that took a, a fair bit of uh, of song and dance to make that happen. Yeah. I don't know exactly what the song and dance was, but I think the league didn't care where the team played physically. They just wanted the name to be San Francisco, you know, and, um, you know, Woosnam obviously is no longer with us. So I don't know what 
captain. Um, Berg, I don't. I talked to him when I wrote the book, but um, but he was. I think his health is not as good as it used to be. So, but um, I don't know if you can still find track him down. But I think. I mean, the league didn't care if the team played a hundred miles away. They just wanted it called San Francisco because it had more name recognition, you know, and that makes sense, you know. But. I don't know. I think they just they just convinced the they had a they had a meeting somewhere in Toronto or Rochester. Um, it's in the book. I forget which place it was, but um, and they and then Berg and Mandrich went there and they had to convince the whole board of directors, you know. And Lamar Hunt, you know, of all people, was the person that they had to basically convince. He didn't he didn't think this was a great idea. And I think uh, just from what I've been told and what Berg said, I think is that, you know, they, they made a point of bringing up the fact that, well, when the Oakland Raiders first came here, nobody had heard of Oakland. Nobody thought, everyone thought this was some backwater city where there would be no sports you know, needed. And that was wrong. Okay. You know, so I think they just brought up the Raiders situation and said, well, look, okay, you know, this was proven a success here. So, you know, and then at that point, the A's were already winning the World Series almost, you know. So I think that's, that was part of it, but I don't know the other details other than that. So I think it's interesting context, right, because uh, this is 1974, right? The NASL had pretty much um, been close to death's door for the years prior to that. And in 1974, yeah. this was a an effort to expand by eight clubs, right? So on the West Coast, Vancouver, Seattle, Los Angeles, Perhaps this "quote unquote" San Francisco thing, plus teams also uh, in the East, well, Denver, Boston, Washington, and Baltimore, right? So, uh, this is really uh, sort of the nationalization, I guess, or the re-nationalization of the North American Soccer League. And of all those franchises, the San Jose Earthquakes come on strong and and just take the league by storm, don't they? In their first year, yeah. Yeah, the first couple of years um, we had, uh, now again, this is a long time ago, so 17,000 people does not seem like a huge att- attendance figure, okay, nowadays. But that said, okay, you know, yeah, I mean, there was no other team in, in this league was drawing more than like six or 7,000 a game at that point, okay, you know. So this is before the Cosmos had won anything before Pele, before any of that stuff had happened. Okay, but this is before all of that. So the first year that the Quakes existed was 74, and they just filled, and again, and this is entirely because it was the first thing that ever happened here, okay, and Berg had a marketing skill that he had, he had inherited from his work with the Niners. I think he was in Seattle before that. So he combined with the way they marketed the team with Crazy George and the way they went and took to the streets and had all the players go out to the shopping malls and meet people and come to your soccer practices. And everybody knew the, who the players were. And that combined with it being the first sporting thing that we ever had here, you know, first pro sports team that we ever had here. So that it was, it was really a huge thing, you know, and, um, the rest of the league saw this and they just said, well, wait a minute. Okay. If these clowns in some backwater suburb can do this, then we can do this too. You know? And then so a lot of other teams started to engage the fan base a lot more and market the team a lot more. And they had, and then again, this is still a relatively brand new sport at this time in America, you know, so everyone had to go out and sell the game to people, you know, and the Quakes are basically who started the idea of the, the whole, the rest of the league guerrilla marketing the sport to the streets of their city. You know. 
Yeah, I um, we are our previous chat with Paul Child, who was uh, also part of that 1974 yeah. initial team and stayed for for quite a few years, was one of probably one of the first breakout star leading the league actually in scoring that first year. But he recounts quite a bit of uh, pressing the flesh, so to speak, and then going out into the uh, into the community and doing clinics and 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 signing autographs and all that kind of stuff. The Shakers Dance Squad, and you know, uh, it yeah. really seems like Berg truly. And Mandarich, too, uh, as owner, right, truly emphasized uh, a real uh, connection with the community and, and making it really seem like this was San Jose's true and only professional sports team and, and, and worth not only connecting with, but coming out to the games. Yeah. And if you were a fan, especially if you were a kid, you know, uh, it was, that's exactly what it was. You know, I mean, there was no sense of having rock star players. There were so many different components that went into the game event okay i mean you know everybody would tailgate on the grass next to the stadium beforehand the players would be driving in the players would come out and hang out with the fans at their tailgate beforehand and then they would go in and have the game everybody would go in before the kickoff even started because everyone wanted to see what crazy george was going to be doing at the game and so there was this huge, you know, play-by-play thing going on before the game even started, and then the game started, and every game is like jam-packed, and you know, it was like a stadium rock show if you were a kid. You know, everybody was just thundering and waiting to see what, the, waiting for the game to start, and then afterward, everybody's out back at their tailgates, and the players themselves come back out to go drink with everybody afterwards. Okay, it was it was completely an unheard of situation and how close the fans were to the player. I mean, there were, to a degree, the Raiders did some things like this in the 70s, too. You know, they would be out at the bars, you know, getting trashed. You know, I mean, Stabler has all sorts of legendary, you know, stories and stuff, you know. But in this, but in this case, you know, the fans were directly connected to the players. Everybody was like one giant family, you know, and they would come to your practices. If you were a kid playing soccer, they would come to your house for dinner. You know, I mean, it was just, this is like unheard of stuff, you know, and they really connected with the community on that level. And that's essentially what made it so popular at first. Well, so it sounded like it was fun. And I guess obviously soccer is, is part of it too, but uh, maybe you could describe what Spartan Stadium was like. I mean, so you talked about tailgating and whatnot, but a couple of things. One, uh, you know, you saw some, some of the, see some of these earlier photos uh, where the field yeah. itself was painted uh, in the sort of earthquake colors. And, and maybe besides that, you could also maybe describe uh, for our audience who has not uh, benefited by hearing our previous episode with Crazy George Henderson, uh, who he was and why he was a big deal in the stands too. Yeah, there's um, well, that's, uh, yeah, I can answer all of that. Um, let's see. Um, well, I mean, Spartan Stadium is at this time the capacity is probably about seventeen thousand people. It's an old, broken down, rickety, decrepit, falling apart stadium. Uh, it was built in like the '30s <laughs> on a dirt hill, you know. Uh, about a mile south of the campus. I mean, again, all of this is suburbia, okay, you know, and and it seats about 17,000 people on wooden benches, and, you know, the locker rooms are run down and falling apart, you know, 1960s era stuff. You know, the bathrooms are these old, like, multiple-person troughs that you take a leak in, okay, at least the guys, okay, you know. I mean, the whole place was just 
a dilapidated venue, but in uh, in a glorious way, <laughs> you know. So, and football, American football field is much much skinnier than a soccer field. Okay, for those of you that don't follow soccer, okay. So, a soccer field is much wider, and much wider, and much longer. Okay, it's a lot larger. So, and because Spartan Stadium was such a tight, compact place with a very narrow field for soccer, um, the fans could basically line the barricades and look over onto the field and you could even only like 20 feet away from the players on the field. You could yell at the opposing players. You could scream at them. You could hear everybody on all the players in the field yelling. Um, you could basically, um, you could verbally abuse the, the, the other players. There was no relatively no security. Okay. So if you were a kid, you could walk down the ramp and stand behind the goal and catch the balls. I mean, during the game, um, everybody, if you were allowed to bring your own beer into the stadium, you could bring an ice chest of beer that was legal. I mean, they still, they, those the vendors walking through the stand still sold beer. You could still do that. It was just a whole different era. And Crazy George is what sort of tied the whole thing together. He was basically a cheerleader from San Jose State in the late 60s, early 70s, and um, did some work for California Seals hockey team. And he was about 30 when all of this started, 1974. Yeah, he's about 72 or 73 now. Um, so he and he was the cheerleader that had the um, snare drum and he would lead the crowd to do all these just crazy chants and mass, you know, forms of ridiculing the, the opposing players. And so this was all of which together was, you know, a good old fashioned home field advantage. I mean, uh, the, the opposing teams hated the play here. I mean, it was just a, the worst place. And because it's a small field and the fans are surrounding the field, it almost feels like indoor soccer when you're playing there. And they, for the opposing team, it's like having to walk into a cage with all these people and all this noise just straight on top of you. And it was just, um, um, again, it was just, it was a true home field advantage. And um, they really don't have that anywhere these days. So it must have been a hell of a lot of fun. And by the way, for you completists out there, if you haven't listened to the Crazy George Henderson episode, that's episode number seven. So go to GoodSeatStillAvailable.com and search for that episode. You will uh, not be disappointed. Uh, and you will hear Crazy George is still in all his craziness, even as, as, as it is his advanced age. He's uh, an absolute treasure and treat uh, to listen to and hear stories from. Um, but it's interesting. So you mentioned all that sort of fun stuff. And I got I to gotta imagine even as a kid. Uh, it's got to be even more wondrous. Um, the team actually did pretty well on the field, right? They, they in their very first season, right, came in second in their division. They lost in the quarterfinals of the playoffs, right? They're they're leading the league by by a ton in attendance. And uh, they had the, the, the leading scorer in Paul Child for the league. Um, you know, I think about, on all accounts, right, it seems like it was a pretty successful start, maybe to the uh, surprise, not only of the community, but to the league itself. Yeah, um, we didn't go until the first couple seasons after they had started. So I, I mean, you know, I mean, so everything I'm telling you now is is still true, as of '76, '77, and stuff. Okay, you know, but um, the first couple of years they were hugely successful, you know, and that led to them or the NASL awarding San Jose the Soccer Bowl, which sort of, which was the championship game in 75. Okay. I think that was the first time they even called it the soccer bowl, you know, and, um, 
they were trying to basically you know, use all the domestic American sports terminology to try and help sell the game. Okay, so soccer ball was just a stupid name to begin with, but that's just <laughs> what they were. That's what that was part of having to try and sell the sport, you know. So, um, so that it was huge, and all these people were coming to San Jose. You know, Pele came to play here twice. I, you know, came to play here twice, and everybody was here. You know, and you know this again. This had never happened. Nothing like this had ever happened here before. You know, so it was, that's that's what made it. And it's not. I mean, sometimes we, the, those of us that tell these stories, we get criticized because we they think it's just a bunch of people telling their childhood memories and exaggerating everything from a child's perspective. But I mean, you can ask anybody who was an adult at that time; they'll tell you all that I'm saying is they'll tell tell you the same thing that I'm saying. I mean, it was really it was just this huge thing that exploded. And totally captured lightning in a bottle, and unfortunately, it just didn't last very long, you know. And um, there were, you know, Milan sold the team, and then because he wanted to go, he didn't want to, you know, the stadium was very small and falling apart, and he saw an idea to go run the Oakland Stompers, so he did that, which didn't last either. And then, you know, he came back a few years later, and that's sort of right when George Best showed up. And then, and then, you know, and then, but the, as everyone knows the story now, but you know, it was, you know, as kids, it was, it was just a fantastic thing to grow up with. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The 10-Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue uh, that could be interesting to our audience here is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly. Entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to and Audible's got it. By the way, two, uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again... Go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. Well, okay, so it, it, it's clear that those first couple of years were, were quite something and, and, and actually quite competitive on the field, too. It wasn't like they were uh, just there for the party, right? Yeah. The crowd, crowds were growing. So maybe we could talk about 77 because um, after that season, right, which was sort of the, the last season of Pele and, and was really on the verge of taking the league even to a, even a, 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 a grander level, uh, at least for a couple more years thereafter, Mandarich decides to divest uh, his ownership of the Quakes and – and and buy another team in Connecticut and move them up to Oakland, right in the same 
you know, metropolitan area and create a new team called the Stompers, yeah. as you mentioned. What do you think, uh, based on what you're what you were able to discern, what was going through uh, Mandridge's head, given that his exploits in San Jose were, you know, frankly, pretty darn successful? Why would he want to give all that up and and try something completely different? What was the allure of Oakland? And was it was it simply a stadium thing or, or, or was there something else going on? I don't know the complete answer to that. Um, I do know the people that do know the answer, but um, I think, yeah, he wanted a larger stadium. He thought that, you know, he, I don't think he ever figured that Spartan Stadium would get the modern infrastructure that he needed. And um, I can't say this for certain, but I think there may have been something in the contract that if the Quakes had ended up falling apart that he had an option to buy the team back or something. I don't know if that's exactly what happened, but then, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, I can't say for sure, but there was definitely something going on where I think he wanted to divest this situation and then start something new in Oakland. I mean, I don't really know the details on that. Yeah. I also can't imagine too, why another team in the immediate vicinity, right? I know certainly major league baseball has its issues when the fights between, you know, the, the rights of the Bay Area between the Giants and the A's and yeah. who's going to move down to San Jose someday, et cetera. But in a fledgling league, granted growing and, and getting up to, the, you know, 24 teams by 1978, I, even even I would sort of question, you know, why would you put a team that's but 45 miles away, uh, you know, in the Bay Area, uh, you know, especially given something that you said before was lightning in a bottle and largely successful and wildly so in the town of in the city of San Jose. Um, like, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't honestly don't know the answer. I think he, I mean, the stadium was a huge part of it. That's just what I'm guessing. You know, he just saw there was a huger stadium there and there was more, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this goes into the theme of the whole book is, you know, is that, you know, that San Jose is still struggling to be taken seriously as a real city and a real destination. And he probably just thought he could get more fans to show up if it was in Oakland, you know, I mean, that's always been an issue, you know, so that's, that's part of it. I mean, other than that, I really don't know the D I should know all of this, but you know, I have, you know, but on that particular detail, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, Paul would child would know that Johnny Moore would know all this. And I mean, Milan's still around. You can, but I don't really remember. I don't know the details. Well, uh, Milan Mandridge. Well, I, I would, I would answer. I, I just don't yeah. know. No, that's okay. I, well, Milan Mandridge is definitely somebody we'd love to to get at some point. So at some point, we've got to put our heads together and figure out how we can get him here on this uh, on this here big show. But um, well, okay. So as it as the team sort of meanders, it seems that uh, by the way, that Oakland Stompers uh, exercise only lasted one year. They were a one year wonder, uh, yeah. replete with Shep yeah. Messing and uh, the Cork Poppers uh, dance team. Yes, you could look it up. Uh, someday we'll devote an episode to that one. Uh, but uh, it seems that uh, in the early '80s, sort of a sort of a new sort of sensibility, I guess, around the team kind of came about. Right? You mentioned uh, probably one of the uh, more notable uh, experiments, and that was a guy by the name of George Best, who in 1981, his second year with the team, right, and his third team overall in the league, right, having sort of. Uh, drunk or drank his way through uh, two, two previous franchises. And that's also another episode that we when we talked about the, the documentary devoted to his life, we talk about that. But there is, you know, George Best did inject quite a bit of uh, of zing, even though in his uh, advancing years and shall we call it uh, uh, not so stable uh, personal life, you know, completed what arguably was uh, considered to be the best ever goal scored in the league. And if you look it up on YouTube, the, the date was 
uh, July 22nd, 1981. And um, I'm sure, you know, you remember some of this as you were putting a book together, but he dances through like, I don't know, it seems like seven, eight, nine players uh, with the ball, almost like a yo-yo at his feet and uh, and puts in the back of the net. And uh, it, it's truly something to see. And, and the fans just go wild. It almost seems like a defining moment of the early 80s of that franchise about how uh, how exciting, if not uh, uh, surprising, uh, his performance and the team was at the, in those days. Yeah, I mean, you have to understand that the re- the team was relatively terrible at that time. And of course, I have friends who were on the team who were who were going to crucify me for saying that. But you know, but I mean, but um, the team was not particularly very, especially in 1980. They were really bad, you know. And then he came along, and um, you know, and he's got his own issues, as everyone knows. So he's just trying to prove that he can still play more than anything. If you were there, especially for that goal, and that goal wasn't the only spectacular thing he did. You know, he there, I mean, you, I mean, you could watch the guy and you could just see that he, I mean, obviously, you know, he's well past his prime, but he just had um, flashes of, you know, incomparable genius to where he could, I mean, he could literally just, I mean, there, were, there were moments when he would just deliberately walk around with the ball for like, two minutes and like nobody could take it away from them. You know, I mean, people, you could tell the defenders would be, would be thinking like, look, just get this over with, just go, just score or, just, or give it to somebody else or something. You know, he would deliberately try and just make, embarrass the other, the guys on the other team. And, you know, he was like somebody showing off in a bar, you know, this is, you know, the same way, same thing, you know, he did on the field, <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable. It's still hard to believe that we how lucky we were to be able to, to to claim now that we saw george best especially in this city okay where which was an unknown place at that time okay nobody came here to do anything okay you know and then this guy is here who and he left a trail of you know good memories and bad memories you know he got married here his kids callum was born here so there's good memories and bad memories that are still that are always going to be talked about but we were just incredibly lucky to see that to, to have that guy play here i mean i it's i mean every time i go to europe you know especially the uk and i tell people yeah i saw the george best when i was a kid they just the whole conversation just stops they look at me like they don't even uh, they don't even believe that i've heard of george best first of all okay and then the, but to say that we saw this guy and I have friends my age who went to soccer camp, and George Best was there helping run the soccer camp. I mean, this is like in suburban San Jose in 1980 or 81, and it's just unbelievable that that guy was even here and that we can still say that. And uh, we go deep into the George Best story, and that's episode 24 in our, our, our uh, previous episode, so look for that too, uh, kind listeners. Uh, but it almost seems too that uh, it was almost emblematic of the franchise at that point, right, circa 1981, right, where... Um, strangely, it seems when Mandarich sort of left the Quakes, it almost seemed like the team kind of left with him, so to speak, because you were talking about how terrible the team was. You know, they didn't qualify for the playoffs pretty much uh, consistently until, you know, uh, for, for many years, um, you know, through through about that time. And it, it frankly, it wasn't even until, I guess, sort of the last sort of gasp in the uh, 82, 83 and 84 seasons. Right. Honestly, the same uh, last seasons of the NASL itself. Uh, when the team actually had some flickers of uh, of success again, yeah. um, like in 83, right? You know, it, it, it went 20 and 10, a pretty darn good record. Um, but uh, largely you had uh, this sort of, uh, well, one, you had a, a, an influx of um, players and a coach from the MISL, Don Popovich and Steve Jungle and Bronco Sagoda, right? And, uh, and two, yeah. the name changed as well, which probably reflected 
I guess, the changing nature of what San Jose was uh, in general, as well as for the league itself. Maybe you can stumble across uh, what you sort of well, saw the last things were there in those, those last couple of years. Yeah, the name change, for those of you that don't know those stories, the name change um, plays right into all the themes of, you know, inferiority complex and geographic dislocation and having no name recognition. And it, all that played into the, you know, um, I forget even who it was. It was either Carl Berg or I think it was him that wanted to basically, they changed the name from San Jose to Golden Bay Earthquakes, okay? And everybody still called them the San Jose Earthquakes. No one, I mean, you know, if you're covering the story as a reporter, you had to say Golden Bay, but everyone still called them the Earthquakes, um, San Jose Earthquakes, you know? And it was just, there's no such place as Golden Bay. It doesn't doesn't exist, okay? You know, there's, there's no place called that okay but it was just some dorky idiotic attempt to try and dumb down the or again it's all plays into inferiority complex and the city of san jose itself doesn't have enough name recognition so they wanted to call it the you know golden bay earthquake so they can at least try and reel in the east bay fans when they were doing the indoor games which were in the Oakland coliseum anyway okay you know so that's all that's how it all played into it you know and it was just a really stupid idea it sounds like a little regional i mean it was yeah sort of like regionalization right so not unlike say tampa bay right which is yeah, also a manufactured it, mythical yeah it was a it was a yeah it was a the whole idea was widely ridiculed and it was a colossal failure of an idea but i mean anyway wiser heads eventually prevailed, you know, and um, even after the NHL had folded and then Bridgewater acquired the, you know, probably just verbal rights to carry on the name. He called it San Jose again. Okay. That was, he, he understood this. Okay. You know, whereas Carl Berg is the guy who owned the team is not a sports person. He doesn't know anything about, he's, you know, so he doesn't understand anything about the history of the club and the heritage and, the city, then you're born into the team and, you know, Bridgewater's from Europe. So he understands all this. So he just immediately said, that's forget that we're going to go back to calling it the San Jose earthquakes. And, you know, so, but it was just a temporary <laughs> stupid decision. And, you know, and I remember being, I mean, I grew up as a kid being really interested in geography. Okay. I, I knew all the state capitals. I knew all the world capitals. I was, I was a worldly kid. Okay. You know, and then, have my city, I mean, and I remember being thinking this was this. This is I was probably about fourteen. Okay, and I remember thinking that that was just the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life to change the name of my team to something called Golden Bay when it didn't even exist. First of all, you know. So I think I'm echoing everybody's opinion on this. You know, but it was just. Um, the team was great. You know, we had Jungle and then, you know, and the 83 team was probably the best team in the league at that year, even though we didn't, we didn't go on to win it that year. But, um, you know, some really good players. And then the writing was already on the wall at that point. I mean, everyone pretty much knew. I mean, they, they were losing teams every year. Teams were folding. And then by the time um, – 85 came around i think they they were trying to salvage what they could but they had i think like i think they had minnesota and vancouver and then even the cosmos had to kick it in because i think canalia had some problems or something and but anyway so and that was the end of it well you mentioned uh peter bridgewater right who at the time in 84 was the uh the general manager and and uh whether he bought the team or just kind of was the last one holding the bag when the door was closing um, 
maybe you can kind of describe his role because it seems like uh, post 84 and the death of the NASL shortly thereafter uh, that, um, you know, he kind of sort of kept some of the, uh, the pieces together and, and, and arguably then kind of let that blend into what sort of became sort of the second era of the earthquakes, even though it wasn't fully the earthquakes yet, which was this uh, diaspora known as the uh, San Francisco Bay Blackhawks, right? Which was, I guess, the local entry into the uh, the minor leagues or the Division Two or Division Three leagues that kind of just stumbled across for the years afterwards to kind of keep the sport alive in this country, albeit uh, in piecemeal fashion. Um, you want to kind of talk about sort of the what the whimpering effects of of what what the earthquakes used to be uh, at that point, and then sort of what they you know, primordially sort of um, evolved to and, and reconstituted in the years uh, uh, shortly thereafter? Yeah, this is where it gets really confusing. But um, basically, I mean, you know, they, the NASL folded for good and or the 84 was the last season. It, the, at the beginning of 85, you know, Clive, Toy, and all those guys were just still trying to salvage something, but it just didn't happen. Okay, anyway, so then Bridgewater um, got the acquired the rights to – carry on the earthquakes name and the logo and the colors. I don't, I'm pretty sure that was just the owners saying, go ahead and do it. I mean, there was no legal documents drawn up or anything. As far as I know, they they probably just got drunk and said, go ahead and take it. I don't care, you know, or something. (laughs) So he, and then Bridgewater became the person essentially responsible for keeping, or he was the main hero keeping all of this alive in the Bay Area, okay? And then he was the one carrying on the Earthquake's name, and he started the Western Soccer Alliance. Um, there's probably people in Seattle that disagree with who started it, but, I mean, Bridgewater started it, okay? First, you know, basically. Um, you know, but, um, so he carried it on, and then, again, the, so these next few years, it's basically essentially an amateur team. To even call it semi-pro is even giving them way too much credit. I mean, it was really just, it was really just a bunch of guys getting paid about twenty-five bucks a game or something, you know. But he he financed or tried to finance it by having all these international exhibition games at Spartan Stadium, and there were a lot of. This is when there were a lot of great games. I mean. For the rest of the 80s, I mean, you saw, like, you know, Maradona came here when he was with Napoli. I mean, there were games like, you know, Manchester City, Real Madrid was here. Again, and then the tickets for this are, like, you know, $18 or something like this to see Real Madrid at, at, and, like, down the street from where I'm living right now, okay, you know. So, so he had a lot of awesome international games like that. And then this, I haven't actually looked at the book that I wrote in about maybe six months or so. So I have to go back and look at the details. But I forget, I mean, you know, but so this is where it gets kind of tricky, okay, whereas Bridgewater was the last owner who owned the earthquakes in the middle era that we're talking about. He, uh, Tony, he kind of, there was some financial difficulties and then he had to basically give up the, the club, and then there's several people involved, not just one person. And then at the same time, I think, I mean, I could be getting the the order wrong here, but, you know, Dan Van Voorhees was starting a whole different, you know, team in a different league and or something. And I, I mean, I have to go back and look at the details. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I think, I think of, yeah, I think Dan Van Voorhees, <laughs> right? So he, he's, he's a, he's a Bay Area real estate lawyer, right? And I, he's, um, you know, I think he somehow gets involved with the Hawks, but he also, you know, in the, in the Western Soccer Alliance and then became the USISL. But he also, though, at the same time, though, was apparently negotiating or somehow getting involved with the formative uh, 
rumblings or beginnings of this thing called Major League Soccer and apparently had the rights yeah. to the Bay Area for an MLS franchise, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, he and Bridgewater did not get along at all. Um, and they were they were always um, at each other's throats about this, you know, we're about this stuff. Whereas Bridgewater at that time is more concerned with, you know, he's on the World Cup committee to bring the World Cup here in 94. So he's, he's in charge of the Stanford venue. He's dealing with all that stuff. And then... Um, so Van Voorhees has those San Francisco Bay Area Blackhawks, which was a fantastic team. That was 91 was the year that they won the championship of that league. Okay. And that team, um, you can talk to anybody that team, those teams in that era were fantastic. It was Eric Winalda. Well, actually Callaway was the coach. It was Eric Winalda was here. John Doyle, Marcelo Balboa, Paul Bravo, Dominic Kinnear played for that team. That that was like a star-studded team of the best American players that we had at that time, you know. And that was so they they were a great team. And then all of this is happening, and then this is and he he was even Van Voorhees was even trying to start something with Mexico, like he was trying to get the Mexican league to combine with some teams on the west coast of in california to have some other joint league and he was so they, all these different irons were in the fire and then um, he eventually had to to basically offload the whole thing to mls so so he but he but he was one of the the, the main people that fought to have san jose as one of the founding cities in mls so he's hugely responsible for that but due to whatever was going on in this financial situation, he had to offload everything to MLS and then the team wasn't. And then, so the, the basically the way to simplify it is that the barrier, this SF barrier Blackhawks, essentially I'm speaking historically, not legally, the, the, the Blackhawks essentially merged with the still percolating history of the earthquakes to basically form what became the San Jose class. That's how I describe it. Right. And and it's also uh, interesting to note that uh, the, the the construct of MLS in the early days and actually still to this day is is largely that of a well, the early days, it was a, of an investor operator kind of model, right, where the investor would come in and, and have effectively rights for a particular franchise or in the case of uh, Anschutz's group, you know, a number of franchises. Uh, but uh, in essence, it would still be actually part of a bigger uh, a bigger hole that is uh, uh, for the league. So what, while you nominally had oversight over a team and or a region, uh, you were really becoming an investor in the league. And it seems like that for whatever financial reasons, Van Voorhees, uh, just about at the beginning of the league itself in 96, kind of had to bow out and, and uh, effectively sell uh, the rights that he had had as part of that process uh, back to the league, which basically meant, if I'm not mistaken, and yes, I was at that very first MLS game in San Jose in Spartan Stadium, seeing Eric Winalda score that dramatic late goal in the 88th minute. Yeah. Um, it, it seems that yeah, the I mean, uh, he, yeah that the clash was, uh, you know, was destined to be sort of league owned uh, for the first couple of years of ex- of, his, of its existence. Um, but maybe you could talk about the name itself, right? Because Bridgewater wasn't a big fan of the team being named the clash, was he? Well, I mean, so let's just go back for a second. Okay. I mean, I mean, what I did said before, I mean, I, I say that for a reason. Okay. Like, you know, that the, so Van Voorhees basically sold off all the, the, the name and the, and the player contracts and everything to MLS. And then they, and then Nike is who was their main sponsor. So they chose the names. Okay. They chose the Kansas city 
with, or I, it was Nike and somebody else. I forget. You know, for our, but Nike shows a class. Okay, but basically, what I'm interested in, <laughs> just as the as the as the person who wrote the book and trying to connect all the dots and all this. I mean, if you go to the first season of MLS, okay, the class is the name. Nobody. It, well, I don't want to say nobody, but anyone who grew up with the, with this sport, no one liked the name. Okay, I don't think Bridgewater liked it either, but this is what Nike wanted. And um, what everyone could immediately see, though, the first year of MLS for the class, um, you had the, the president of the team is Bridgewater. Um, Lori Calloway is the coach. John Doyle is the first player signed. And the TV commentators are uh, Mark Demling and Chris Dangerfield. Okay, so that right there is four different levels of continuation from the previous San Jose earthquakes. So this was obviously a continuation of what we'd all grown up with since 1974. Everybody from here knew that and understood that immediately. Okay, so... But um, the you know Nike is the one who was able to choose <laughs> choose the name, and that's then eventually wiser heads prevailed, and you know later you know even if they named it back to the earthquakes for the wrong reason, at least they did, then you know a whole lot would have been different if they hadn't have done that. Well, so in, in October of '99, after their one, two, three, fourth season, um, they did indeed change the name back to Earthquakes, and but you say for the wrong reasons. Why do you think? Well, it, it seems to the outsider, right, that it's just a simple uh, deference yeah, to, to yeah. the team, to the in the heritage. But you know, it, was it just a name only? Was it just a, a, a smatter, a, a coating of paint, so to speak? Or it doesn't seem like there was I a lot of was. roots. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, Lynn Metropole was the GM at that time, and I think um, they just had a oh, they had some kind of. Um, readership or not readership. I mean, I'm a newspaper guy, so I automatically say readership. Um, no, as a, they had some kind of fan survey and that combined with a whole bunch of idiotic, you know, consultants that they were working with. And I don't know. So eventually she came to the idea, well, we should just change it back to the earthquakes because the team is not doing very well. They're, they're, they're a pretty terrible team and maybe they're just drinks because they're, I don't know. But, um, I think she just finally made a decision one day and, and just, um, walked out of the office and said, we're going to do this, you know? And, um, I don't think she did it out of any kind of knowledge of any massive amount of history. Like we've been just talking about, I think, um, she just, you know, it was just uh, after talking to the fans and saying, okay, well, maybe this is just a better thing to do. And then um, the team was still horrible the next year. <laughs> it's, you know, so that, it didn't change anything. But I think they had, a con- they had a consultant who made them realize that blue jerseys sell more than, you know, this gaudy, awful thing that they were wearing, you know, the class was wearing. So they did that. And, um, not, again, this is, this is details that I don't really remember, but, um, well, indeed, I mean, that, all that, this would have been too yeah. much to include in the book anyway. But. Well, no, that so that, but, uh, clearly they did start to catch fire the following year. And I don't think again, it's because of the yeah. name changed back to earthquakes, but with, with a new coach in Frank Yallop and an assistant coach in Dominic Kinnear and a new, uh, allocation in the name of Landon Donovan, right? The fortunes, dramatically change in 2001 
uh, literally for the last number of years of its uh, second incarnation as the earthquakes, they truly became one of the, if not the league's leading teams over the next five years. And uh, and the earthquakes name, not a bad association given that. Well, I think it was the earthquakes name was definitely part of it. I mean, I think they, a lot more people identified with it. <clears throat> At least the people who had grown up with the team and uh, or the original team and had suffered through this idiotic name of the clash and these horrible like 1990s shopping mall emo kind of you know jerseys that they had um at least you know we were glad that they were at least calling it the earthquakes <laughs> you know and then and then from 01 to 05 i would definitely say that we were the best team in the league over those five years i mean not just by statistics i mean but i think we definitely were you know they were a really fun team to watch it wasn't just a bunch of guys booting the ball upfield and dump and chase you know hockey style i mean it was it was they had the ball on the ground the whole game it was possession soccer they were some really interesting characters playing on the team that had their own personalities on the field the way that they played um the starting lineup was essentially the same starting lineup most of the games in a row you know it was it was you know it was a really really great you know family of a team and they they all got along most of them got along off the field you know and um if there was any player that came into the team and had a chip on his shoulder and tried to act like a punk and thought he was bigger than the team. They would just get rid of him and say, that's it, you're out of here. And, you know, everybody kind of went out and supported each other. And it was everything that you wanted from a team, from a professional football or soccer team at that time, you know, and it was, and again, this is still 01, 02, 03, 04. So people still aren't sure that the league is even going to last, you know, that much longer. Nobody knows at this point. And then, you know, Landon had essentially the entire future of the sport dumped onto his back, you know, whether he wanted it or not, <laughs> you know, wanted to be that person or not. So he's getting tugged in a million different directions. You know, people want him to go to Europe and play over there. And, you know, he doesn't know what, he's only 20 years old, so he doesn't know how to deal with all this. But he was definitely the best player we had had in the U.S. to that point, at least at, at that time. And again, this is like to say that I was a kid growing up in this stadium and seeing George Best play on that field. And then, you know, 20 years later, here I am, a journalist watching Landon Donovan, who's the best player that we have in the country, play on that field right there. It was just, I mean, it was the most blessed feeling I could possibly have. It was just amazing that the whole thing came full circle to that point. And then we win two championships. And, um, I mean, history, the history wrote itself. I didn't have to do any work to tell the history on this. <laughs> you know, it was pretty easy. Well, yeah, and and uh, not only uh, two MLS Cups, but a supporter shield in 2005. And you also, um, you know, you saw, you know, a team that, um, you know, had the biggest turnaround in, in, in league history. And, and you know, there was, uh, it was clearly something, uh, something plus the Darbies, right, with, with Los Angeles, right? That's really where this sort of modern-day yeah, California yeah. Classico really got going in earnest. There's some real barn burners of games that happened during that period of time too, uh, between the, the galaxy and, yeah, uh, and I mean, the yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it sounds weird to say stuff like, you know, the best turnaround in league history. I mean, the league only existed, you know, five years, Fair okay, enough. That Fair time, enough. you know, but, but I mean, you know, and we're only talking about, I mean, no, I'm, I'm saying, I mean, I say that too. Okay. I mean, but just, I mean, just in, in retrospect to put everything in context, I mean, even though it was only, 
2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, you know, five years. I mean, but uh, during that short amount of time, I mean, that the L.A.-San Jose rivalry really was the most intense, filled, you know, true, authentic rivalry that the short, this, the short fledgling league had seen at that point, okay? Now, by now, nowadays, the situation in up north, Seattle and Portland has completely overclipsed it, and then probably, that's probably the hugest rivalry in the league. I mean, because that goes back to the '70s, and it's probably completely eclipsed anything that San Jose and LA probably ever was. I mean, but for this five years at that time, '01 to '05, that was like, I mean, you know, like we win the championship in '01, they win it in '02, we win it in '03 in their stadium, in their brand new stadium in '03, and then. um I think DC won the next year, and then we came back in '05 to we were the best team in the league easily. Um, we only lost four games that year, which is still a record, I think. And then, but they snuck into the champion, into the playoffs, knock, and then we got knocked out. And then, um, you know, Landon got the last laugh, and then you know they went on to win it. So that absolutely was the best, most intense and most authentic rivalry. Just as, as much as you can say in just, you know, five short years of a 20 you know year league so far. But yeah, it was just fun to be a part of. Well, all right. So despite all that success on the field, it's clear, though, that behind the scenes, right, the um, the, the bubbling up uh, of uh, more, shall we say, financial and and ownership issues started to really play out. I mean, obviously you saw Frank Yallop uh, leave to become the national coach of Canada and Dominic Kinnear uh, uh, became uh, the the head coach. But um, I think it's also important to remember that uh, the Anschutz group was still, AEG, was still the owner of this team, uh, effectively uh, an owner of a number of teams keeping this league going. And it was pretty clear that they were actively trying to uh, sell off this team or at least disperse of some of the teams that they own so that they would they could spread out the ownership across the league. And in 2004, despite, you know, uh, a, a pretty good run of success on the field, uh, you had a bunch of things happening, including the general manager, Johnny Moore, resigning. Uh, you had this idea, which I didn't even know about. The AEG apparently was close to to selling the team to to Club America of Mexico and renaming yeah. the team San yeah. Jose America. How did that come about? I mean, that's it almost presages what Chivas became later on. But wow, that, that would have been a yeah, well, monstrosity. Both of those, well, both of those ideas were percolating at the same time, you know. So, I mean, you know, um, you know club, I mean, AG didn't want to be in this market. It's not their market. They don't know anything about this market. They don't care. They, they just didn't. They figured they could. Um, Eventually, they figured, they realized, well, they had a better opportunity to get a stadium in Houston that they didn't have to pay for, you know, and um, that won't happen in California. You can't, you're not going to, no one will vote to have a stadium built with any kind of public money. It just won't, it, 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 people won't vote for that here. It'll get loose by a landslide, you know, so, um, so they weren't going to have anything like that happen around here. Um, and then, but, at, but right before that, they were trying to shop the team to San Antonio. They were trying to sell it, as you say, to Club America from Mexico City. And um, and so if they had bought the team, they would have either kept it here or moved it to Houston and renamed it something else. I mean, so there was a lot of things like that. But then um, 
Johnny Moore was who you can say basically is the earthquakes. He was the, he was like, he's like, you know, the guy who's been here since it started, you know, they, they started him and Dick Berg started the club in the hotel room in the Hyatt on first street, the Hyatt hotel. That's where they first figured out how to start the, the business. Okay. You know, so he's been there since the beginning. He's like the fan favorite who is now returned as general manager. And, and he just, um, he didn't want his club, and he—he he, if there's any person in the world who can say it, this is his club. It's his—he, Johnny can say that, you know. And so he's—I mean, as the general manager in 2000, you know, three or four, you know, at this time. So, and then once he heard that they were planning to essentially sell the the whole franchise to Club America and, and remove and destroy all the history that Johnny helped build for from day one. He just sort of like threw his bomb in front of the tracks and said, I'm done, I'm out of here and, and which somehow which pretty much helped derail the whole that whole deal. But I can't say that I can't say legally for sure if it derailed the whole deal. You have to talk to you know, AEG about that, but I don't, but anyway, they didn't end up doing that deal. And then, um, so they kept the team here at the end of 04, they were going to pull the trigger and move it to move it to Houston. But then, um, some, a, a group of people, local fans banded together and helped to rally the masses and convinced AEG to keep it here another year. And then, um, which they still didn't find a, a local owner at that point. And, um, so they moved the, the whole thing to Houston. And then the fans here are the ones who essentially fought to keep the records and the statistics and the trophies and the historical lineage here. The fans are the ones who did that. If they were, had not done that, then, um, AG would never have even thought about doing that. The league would never have cared. And then when they did bring a team back here, it probably would have ended up being called something else. You know, I don't know. But the fans are the ones who did that. That's the important thing. Yeah, that's. And I hope the people in Columbus right now are listening to this because that is, you know, it's pretty scary what these corporate owners, what these absentee owners who care nothing about the history and the heritage heritage of the club that they're destroying by moving it to some other place, you know, and there's no other situation in any other country in the world where you would move a team somewhere. This is a completely American exception, a belligerent American exceptionalist invention to do, to do this. Okay. It, it, it's, you know, if you go to see, if you go see how soccer is done anywhere else in the entire world, you're born into the club you're a fan of that team. It doesn't move somewhere else. Okay. The club and the history are the important thing. Owners come and go, leagues come and go, or you get promoted or relegated into a different league. You know, the owners come and go, corporations come and go. It doesn't matter. Okay? The club is the important thing. Okay. You know, and this guy in the club is, uh, doesn't, doesn't understand any of this. Okay. AG doesn't, didn't understand any of this. They probably understand a little bit more now, but you know, it was just the stupidest thing in the history of the league to move that team. Well, so you're, you're, you're almost, it's almost seems like it could be another, another story around that thing. So, you know, the idea, so it's a couple of things. One, right. The, the, the team moves to Houston, right. AEG moves the team to Houston. And uh, of course, as the Houston dynamo, they continue to set the, 
the league on fire by winning two MLS Cups championships and 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 doing very very well in their first four years, right? And yeah, you know, yippee. Yeah, well, right. And and you got to think as a jilted uh, fan of the San Jose franchise, right? So, but also you're hinting at, and this is, this requires a little bit of dexterity here. This almost sounds like the, uh, the Cleveland Browns NFL deal when the new Cleveland Browns were established. Um, it, it, It basically sounds like what you're telling me is that the fans were the ones that insisted on, uh, on not transferring, if you will, all of the, the heritage onto the dynamo, but uh, when it was de- uh, decided that there would be a uh, a uh, an expansion franchise that not only would it be named the Earthquakes when it came back, but all of the previous uh, uh, records and uh, and heritage and name and logo and colors and all that stuff would revert back, so that in essence the expansion franchise would not be technically the new San Jose Earthquakes franchise in um, uh, in the 2008, but would actually be the Houston Dynamo. So it's a little weird if you're not sort of paying attention, right? The real expansion, it was a franchise that moved, that is San Jose to Houston. Uh, and then a really an expansion franchise was named in San Jose again a few years later. Yet the transfer of all the heritage, instead of it going to Houston when they started there, it actually reverted back to San Jose here. So it's interesting as you go back and look at the yeah. history and look at the records and stuff to make sure that you understand this little speed bump along the way, I guess. Yeah, I mean the 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 history and heritage did not get transferred anywhere. The history and the records and the and the trophies and the statistics and everything remained here. And the fans are who fought for that. Okay, that's the important thing to realize here. Okay, AG would never have done that. The league would never have agreed to even cared about any of that. You know, and so the fans fought for that and. Um, and um, AG said, you know, he said, fine, you can, you can have that. Okay. We, you know, um, now it's up in the air, whether they, I think um, they, when they moved the franchise to Houston, they were definitely already in the process of trying to figure out how they could return a team here and launch it to in San Jose again. Okay. They, they were definitely already trying to figure out how to do that. And in fact, when they announced the move to Houston, they announced that they had already spoken to Lou Wolf and about trying to figure out how to do that. So they were definitely planning to come back here. Okay. But you know, um, it, that would have been completely up to the new owner as far as what to call the team or what to do with it. You know, there was no, that was not decided per that was not officially guaranteed or it would not have been guaranteed that the new San Jose team would be called the earthquakes again. They would, they would, they would probably have left it up to the owner to do that. If the fans had not fought to keep the name and the statistics and the championship trophies here, you know, meaning if we win again, it'll be our third championship and the, and the records and the stats are all continuous from 96 until through all right. Yeah, it does. So as we sort of round up here, I, um, I, I do want to get through sort of how how this uh, occurs. Right. Because it seems to the outsider sort of a cynical play. You know, I don't understand. I don't understand. And I, this is a naive question. Why an AEG couldn't have found uh, an Oakland A's owner in Lou Wolf and and just dealt with the franchise in that way, exchange the franchise at that point versus having to dramatically move this to Houston, right? And then Wolf coming in essentially was an expansion franchise and kind of starting from scratch 
at least, you know, with a, I guess, a clean slate to, to rebuild the franchise. Why, why do you think, or maybe there's just not an answer at this point, why couldn't AEG just get a deal done with Wolf, you know, in 06, or sorry, in, um, uh, you know, in 05, 06 uh, versus having to go through all the drama of a team leaving and then coming another win coming back? I don't know the answer to that. I think, um, as we said before, I mean, AEG doesn't want, I mean, they could have afforded to lose money. You know, I mean, Anschutz is a zillionaire. He could afford to lose $100 million a year on the earthquake for 100 years. You know, he's, he doesn't care, you know. But, I mean, I think, um, I don't know. They didn't want to be in this market. They really thought, they saw that Houston had the largest um, – amount of television viewers watching MLS for a city that didn't have a team yet. Um, they just ah. saw that they thought they know that they knew that land is a lot cheaper down there. They saw that they probably had a way with the politicians who could figure out how to use some public money to help pay for it. Um, so they they probably just thought they could get the deal done and just do this and pull the trigger and not, you know, considering how they've been, had how they had had the team for a couple of seasons and then they nothing could come of it. I don't think they really tried very hard to look for an owner or anything. I don't think they were ever serious about keeping the team here. They just would rather have somebody who knows the city and knows the Bay area, knows the market, knows the real estate here. And then maybe Lou Wolf just didn't show up in time. I don't really know. I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. The local angle seems like it might make sense. Uh, and it's interesting, too, that that Wolf was given a three year option to kind of, you know, uh, in earnest, develop a stadium. Right. Which, as we see now. Right. And you're kind of hinting at it with with uh, the Columbus situation in MLS uh, currently, as we record this. Right. The you know, it's um, it's pretty clear that that Major League Soccer is is uh, not just about sort of uh, uh, Division One soccer and, and the quality of such or the debatable quality of such. We can we can argue, but is really you know, almost the lead story is is real estate, right? The idea of owning and building these stadiums to control all these revenue streams, right? It's it's clear that this the the model of Major League Soccer still, by the way, centrally owned, right? It's not franchised still yet. Um, that the the cornerstone of the business model uh, is a stadium in which uh, full or or large majority ownership of revenue streams uh, is expected. Uh, and, um, it's almost like, this is sort of like maybe the textbook, uh, story or example of how that model that currently exists now, uh, started to come to be with this, uh, this, uh, uh, earthquakes, uh, franchise situation. Well, I mean, this is the party line that the league will tell you, you know, I mean, Seattle doesn't own their state. Isn't the, they're sharing a stadium. You know, everyone talks about how all the great crowds in Portland and Seattle are doing, how, how how much crowds they how, or everyone's talking about you know the great crowds that they get up there. Well, they had they didn't have, they they had they did they had the luxury of already having a stadium there. They had to either remodel it or they shared it with another professional sport. Okay, I mean we had to build the whole thing from scratch. Okay, it was not that easy around here to do that. Okay, you know so the whole thing about requiring every MLS franchise to have a new built stadium for itself, blah, blah, blah. That's essentially just the, the, the party line from the league because that just fits in with, you know, they, they've always played favorites, you know, they, you know, they want the seat, the teams like Seattle and Portland and Los Angeles to be, you know, 
they want those teams and those markets to succeed. You know, they don't care if we succeed, you know, um, this is my opinion, you know, not anybody else's, but, um, you know, so it's the, the stadium thing is, you know, I mean, they're at the point where it's obviously the franchise model is not working like they are initially are going to think it will, you know, I mean, it's basically a domestic American sports franchise model. If you go anywhere else in the world, there's no such thing as uh, these franchises for soccer. The team, they're, they're, they're clubs, not franchises. You know, you, you own your own club. And if you do good, you get promoted to the next division. And if you do bad, you get relegated. And then but you own the club, okay? And then the whole city is for the club. And they own the club, okay? Or the owner owns the club. So... And if you want to stay in, you, it's your club, so you raise the money and you build it, okay, you know. And there's none of this single entity crap or anything, you know. So it's a, that's a whole different argument, but... Well, it's it's, it's, a, it's a raw one, and it's certainly something that uh, as as we as soccer fans debate sort of the future of the sport, right, and not making the World Cup is certainly a really good uh, perhaps, perhaps a, a, a example of perhaps a, a what needs to be changed or, or, or undone or, or rethought. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a very valid point. I mean, Columbus is a good example, and you've got a lot of uh, arguers here for uh, pro rel and um, uh, and the quality of play on the field, and and frankly, the business model of MLS, which you know is still a uh, single entity, and uh, you know the despite the uh, whimpering uh, last gasps of the uh, second incarnation of the uh, North American Soccer League, right, is wending its way through the courts, and it could be you know, things around uh, antitrust and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. It's another conversation. Why don't we uh, maybe segue and, and sort of try to uh, circle the end of this conversation uh, with maybe this uh, still not too clear path to uh, the third version, shall we say, of the earthquakes. Um, they debuted in the spring of 2008. So Wolf got the franchise rights in 06 and uh, they got uh, kind of got the club sort of up and running and in albeit a, a temporary uh, playing situation, but wasn't for a lack of trying. Um, I, it's just it's interesting to me that the team comes back in 08, um, starts to play, uh, you know, mostly at Buckshaw Stadium at Santa Clara College on a sort of, you know, a, a sort of a, a temporary and expanded basis. But the new Avaya Stadium that we now know and love and enjoy, and it's an amazing facility, by the way, if you uh, do find yourself in San Jose or in near Mineta Airport, uh, you owe it to yourself to go uh, to a game at Avaya Stadium. Uh, it is an 18,000 seat uh, cracker box of a stadium with great sight lines and the world's largest outdoor bar uh, uh, yeah. uh, with uh, a gigantic uh, a screen atop of it uh, for uh, the playing action and stuff. But it took from 2008 until not until February 2015. So how does uh, I mean, it seems like it was still a challenge, even though Wolf got the team up and running, he got the franchise rights. Uh, he was a local owner and and somebody who could perhaps make things happen that AEG couldn't. It still took that much time to get a soccer specific stadium built uh, for the new version of the earthquakes. Maybe a little bit of uh, a hint about sort of that story. Yeah, there's several different uh, pieces to this. Uh, also, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, well, one, it takes forever to get anything built in California for anything like this. Okay, first of all, there's a lot of real estate issues there's a lot of politics there's a lot i mean it's right next to the airport so they had to clear all that stuff and it's right it's 
in the neighborhood of a bunch of houses that are far away, but on, you know, next to, un- to the university. So they were kind of, you know, antsy about what they were going to, how they can have a stadium so close to their place. And, um, and they all, which are, are issues. And then the land they're building it on is a former uh, military research facility. So there was like bunkers and things underneath the ground that they ran into. So that knocked it back a year, first of all. Um, so that's one component of the whole thing is just all the bureaucracy and the issues and, uh, and things like that. And then, um, Wolf is usually the one whose name is thrown around the most on this, but he, I mean, he was basically the lead owner when they came in and then his son essentially, uh, was most, was the point person for a lot of it. Whereas, um, Fisher is the guy who basically makes the more large, financial decisions when it comes to it. Um, you know, first of all, it's not really Wolf. And then, um, and then Dave Cavill, it was the president. He was brought in essentially to be the guy that, to take the lead and make the stadium happen and, uh, make sure it was a good stadium and not some, you know, cheapskate third rate, you know, just build whatever you can build as cheaply as possible kind of thing, which is probably what Wolf would have done if he was the only one doing it. Um, I don't mean that in a personal bad way, but that's just how he works. Okay. You know, and so Cavill came in and he was basically the, the main lead man responsible for turning it into turning the stadium idea into what you see it as now. So he was, and he has a good business sense and, um, you know, some, some of the fans don't like him for whatever reason, but, um, he's now moved on to the Oakland A's to basically do exactly the same thing to basically make the stadium happen there. And it's, um, he's basically, they're basically using our blueprint of how he did this here. Okay. You know, so, and he, when he was really instrumental in making the whole thing happen, um, he was the guy that put all the pieces together and, um, made sure that it was um, a much better facility than it probably would have been otherwise. I uh, got the sense, too, that uh, the actual construction site was a bit problematic as well. That delayed things further. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was just saying. Um, they, the, this was on the site, the, the site across the, from the airport where the stadium is was a former uh, SMC plant. It was a lot, there was a lot of military research that was done there. Um, even as recently as 10 years ago, you could see tanks, you know, rolling across this land, you know, <laughs> doing stuff, you know, and there was old, you know, munitions and weaponry buried underneath the ground that they dug into when they were building the initial groundbreaking air stuff. And, you know, so that is what, they uh, drilled into like some old bunker that they didn't even know was there underneath the ground. And that's what basically delayed it for at least half a year or something. So there, you know, so that, you know, so it, it was going to open a year earlier, but they didn't, they, they couldn't make it work. But I think by all accounts, a, a, uh, well worth the wait, right? It's a, it's a really fun and, and great stadium. And I think the atmosphere is just, uh, it's, it's, I think it's really well done. And I think it's, uh, it's fun. And in yeah. some cases, yeah, a little bit of a throwback to, some of the maybe more earlier, you know, sort of incarnation days of, you know, the family, well, family friendly, but certainly just the more fun aspect of the original uh, franchise back in the day. Yeah, and that, that, that definitely played a role into how they were wanting to build it. You know, I mean, they don't want, 
you know, and, and the seventies was this era of the gigantic, you know, concrete stadiums, you know, and maybe they were used for the Olympics and there's a track around the whole field and all these different things that made places horrible to see soccer games in. And even now, if you go to a game at Levi's stadium, it's, it's horrible to see a soccer game or even candlestick. It was just God awful. It just wasn't built for this, you know? And whereas this stadium, it's, it's small, it's 18,000. Um, that's about the top of what they draw, you know, for the season It's about 18,000. So that, that, that's a, that's the right size for now. And, um, you know, there's not a bad seat. You don't, you can get lost. It's really small. You can walk around the whole place, circle the whole place in like 10 minutes, you know, um, the, the, you know, there's still some problems, you know, the traffic and the, the egress and or whatever the, those terms are that the, how you drive into the place and drive out, it's not always, it's a little convoluted and, you know, they're having problems with, you know, VIP lots are not VIP enough. And, you know, they just finally paved a lot of the parking lot. And it was, you know, it, so there's a lot of things that are still not really up to speed enough as what they could be, but it's inside the stadium. It's a fantastic place to hang out. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a great place to see a game. All right. So as we sort of wrap up here, um, it, it I, I get the sense that uh, so you you know you've you've seen this team uh, in its various incarnations. You've you've covered uh, uh, sports and the team and other things in in the uh, in the San Jose area for some time. What do you uh, what do you sort of see the uh, the franchise's uh, future looking like? It's it's clear to me that they've uh, spent the last couple of years uh, throwing back a bit. Uh, I think I saw a couple of season ticket uh, images that uh, uh, looked back on some of the uh, major events in the team's history back in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, I uh, saw Crazy George was, uh, uh, you know, uh, part of, uh, part of a, a, uh, the beginnings of, of one of the games. And it seems like they've not forgotten their past and almost uh, warmly embraced it, which I guess is uh, a good thing and very refreshing to see. Yeah, that is a good thing and refreshing to see, you know, and Crazy George was there almost every game this season, you know, but there's still, I mean, still the the, the team on the field was, was relatively terrible this year and they were less, they weren't that great the year before either. So, you know, and um, the fans are, they're, are starting to, and they're raising the season ticket prices every single year. And the team is getting worse every year. You know, I mean, they were, they, they got some, they have a, they overhauled everything and brought in a new GM and they will have a new coach next year. And they're hiring and they're signing some really interesting European players that uh, have some personality and some Latin American players that have some personality and they have some homegrown local guys that have a lot of personality. So they're, so they seem to be gathering the mix pretty well as far as entering a new phase, but you know, it gets very frustrating as a fan because you're, it seems like every year, every season, they're trying to rebuild from the disasters of the previous season. Okay. It never really gets anywhere, you know? So and then meanwhile, they're raising the season ticket prices and adding more luxury stuff and they can't fill the stadium, you know, so they're having all the same problems that any, you know, franchise has, you know, but, um, the future, I don't know. I mean, I think they have a, they, they have what looks like the, a more, uh, personality driven and, you know, unique, you know, set of players now than I think they've had in the last several years. So, we will have to see. 
Well, it's a story that I, keep... I mean, I wish I could be more optimistic than that, but it's really difficult right now. <laughs> you know? Well, OK, but it's a story that uh, has further chapters to go. Right. So perhaps there's a, a part yeah. two to uh, to your book. And um, and Gary, I got to I thank you for this. Is uh, This has been great. I, there's a lot of things that I learned sort of in this discussion and, and the lead up to it uh, about this uh, franchise. And it's uh, you know, it's it's got some various uh, and some very interesting little nooks and crannies and turns and stuff that uh, I think people overlook or frankly just forget. Uh, but when you go all the way back to the beginnings, what uh, what the city and the and the region was like to what it is today, uh, that's part of the story. The uh, the the franchise and its uh, its history within the league or or not a league or a league again, uh, you know, ownership of the of the of the name and. And the, the history behind it and, and the, to stadium or not to stadium, um, you know, and, and, and the fans, right? We, we keep forgetting about the fans, right? And, and their ability to sort of, you know, change the, the corporate uh, uh, lexicon to keep, you know, the heritage and the history of the team. I mean, all these things are really, uh, really important things, especially if you're a fan of the team now. Uh, to not know them or be ignorant of them, I think, is, uh, you know, is an injustice. So uh, uh, kudos to you for... Uh, covering for this great length of time kudos for uh chronicling the book which we will uh uh promote during uh during the course of the previews of the show and um thank you very much this has been awesome i i've learned a lot and i hopefully will get to some other folks like johnny moore and uh, perhaps um milan mandarich and some others who are uh willing and, and ready and, and able to to have a conversation even deeper about uh some more of these interesting stories about the san jose earthquakes yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the history is important. Um, it's not the only important thing. Obviously, the team on the field now is important too. Okay, you know, but I think between us and Vancouver and Seattle and Portland, you know, those are the only four teams that have a long history like this. You know, the rest of the country doesn't, or the rest of the the teams in MLS don't. Okay, you know, and they can manufacture any rivalry they want and manufacture any new franchise and sign whoever whatever player you want they aren't going to have the history that we have you know and that's the cool thing all right i think we're uh, just kind of scratching the surface on some of the uh, little intricacies of that uh, san jose earthquakes uh, story and uh, hopefully we'll have a few other folks to uh, sort of fill in uh, even more of those uh, gaps. Uh, we'd love to get uh, uh, Milan Mandarich, uh, certainly. We'd love to get Johnny Moore in there. Um, there's certainly a lot of other uh, characters uh, involved in the San Jose Earthquake story, versions one, two, and currently three, uh, that we'd love to find out more about. And um, hopefully in uh, conjunction with Gary or uh, aside from, uh, we can uh, go a little bit further in some of these nooks and crannies and untold stories further about uh, arguably one of the more uh, colorful and uh, vivid and fun franchises in not only the NASL, but current uh, Major League Soccer uh, as well. Uh, Gary Singh uh, is an interesting guy. He's got lots going on. Very creative gentleman. Uh, uh, He can be found weekly uh, with his column and his writings in the the Metro Silicon Valley uh, publication, which is one of the largest, uh, well, actually the uh, uh, longest lasting uh, alternative weeklies uh, in the San Jose area. It's Metro Silicon Valley. Uh, I think the website for that is metrosiliconvalley.com, uh, strangely enough. Uh, Gary's book, as we talked about, is uh, The San Jose Earthquakes, A Seismic Soccer Legacy. 
Uh, you will find uh, that wherever good books are sold, uh, including a link uh, to that book uh, on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, just search for the episode number 40 with Gary Singh, and you will see a link conveniently there for you to uh, go to Amazon uh, and purchase said book. Uh, and uh, all the other stuff that Gary's got going on, you can go to his website. That's Gary Singh, S-I-N-G-H dot info. That's Gary Singh dot info. And uh, there you will find all the uh, good stuff uh, in writings and creativity of uh, of our guest, Gary Singh, who we thank tremendously uh, for walking us through the San Jose earthquake story. Um, for you completists out there, we mentioned a couple of uh, previous guests and uh, the episodes uh, that uh, they were on. And uh, episode number seven uh, is where you'll find our, our chat with uh, Crazy George Henderson, um, who was obviously a part of the uh, the fun and frivolity in the early days, and frankly, even the current days of the San Jose Earthquakes in the stands. Uh, a great conversation there. Uh, episode 22 is worth your uh, listening to as well. And that's our episode with Dan Gordon, uh, who uh, uh, crafted the uh, very fine documentary film about the life of George Best, uh, and in which you will see uh, that, uh, that highlight that we discussed in our conversation with Gary here uh, of George Best and arguably... Uh, his and maybe the NASL's greatest ever goal uh, in July of 1981 at Spartan Stadium. It's it's, it's quite a sight to see, uh, and it's George Best, maybe past his prime, but uh, the glimpses of brilliance are absolutely uh, on display in that clip and in that movie. And that's with Dan Gordon, uh, who uh, had the movie uh, that was uh, an ESPN 30 for 30, and that's our episode number 32. And of course, don't forget episode 35, uh, which was our very uh, fun and rollicking interview with Paul Child, uh, one of the first true stars of the original San Jose Earthquakes in 1974. Uh, and that's a fun journey as well into uh, Paul's life and career, uh, much of which got a very heady start uh, in earnest uh, when he was part of the San Jose Earthquakes of the mid and late 1970s. So give all those previous episodes a listen. I think you'll enjoy and it'll help further tell this uh, fuller story of of the earthquakes and obviously more hopefully to come uh, with other guests as we wend our way through uh, uh, our our journey together into forgotten sports lore and history. Uh, let's see. So our website is goodseatsstillavailable.com. As I said, please go there early and often. That's where you'll find every single one of our past episodes. Uh, you will find all the links to our various social media. You can click into getting all the various uh media that uh, we talk about on this show, whether it's books or CDs or videos or whatever, uh, that's where you can find all that good stuff. And on social media directly, you can go to Facebook and like us there. Uh, you can go to Instagram at Good Seats Still Available and follow us there. And of course, on Twitter at Good Seats Still, that's our little handle there. You can follow us and, uh, and tweet at us uh, as well. Uh, okay, I think I've uh, exhausted myself and uh, our guests and, uh, and probably you as the listeners. So thank you for listening. Uh, we always appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week for another fun-filled episode. Until then, drive safely, everybody. Take care. <laughs>